Hi, I'm Chris Mirabella, and welcome to the Precious Stories podcast. In today's episode, I'd like to share a conversation I recorded with my brother Tim Mirabella and Maureen Hegarty from the Marceline Business Network back in 2019. Tim kindly shared his many years of experience in the maritime industry with us. It's a great story. Please enjoy. So Tim, how did you get into the fishing industry? Well, my grandfather was a fisherman, as was his father, and I spent most of my school holidays down at Hastings with him, going out in the boat, fishing, learning how to sling nets and looking after the boat, maintenance of the boat, all that sort of stuff that goes with being a fisherman. And uh, growing up, spending my time with my grandfather, spending school holidays with my grandfather was uh, a strong appeal for me. And it was something that, it might sound corny, but it, it gets in the blood. And once you have that passion or that taste for it, for being out on the water and being at sea, it's very hard to walk away from. And it becomes part of who you are. So growing up, being out on the water is really wanted, uh, what I wanted to do. So I left school and started fishing with, with my grandfather. So it was a bit of a boy's own adventure. I suppose it gave you a real-life experience of all the pleasures but also all the challenges that your grandfather was facing running his fishing endeavour. Well, my grandfather was an interesting character because he crossed into another time because when my grandfather grew up, they didn't have motors in boats. They sailed, they rowed. There was no refrigeration. Being at sea had its own challenges. There was no navigational aids they just went to sea and relied on their skills to get back safely there weren't weather predictions you couldn't go on the internet check the latest weather forecast they understood the weather patterns they understood the signs to look for what they perceived as the threat so he was an interesting person to spend time with because that was his background that was his life and he was completely connected to his environment and Mm the world in which he operated in. Mm. So it was like being in a in another time. It was like being in another world. And it was a world that was very simple. It was very much linked to habitat, to environment, and how you operated as a fisherman within that world. Yes, the cause and effect of what you're doing. Yes. What you're and, responding to. Yes. And to end up as a viable operator to actually provide yourself and your family with a, with an income, you were completely linked into the cycles of the season, the patterns of the fish, yes. understanding their behaviour, where would they be at certain times mm. of the year, where would they present themselves. It was a world of being completely tuned into the marine environment. Mm. So you were fishing with your grandfather in the school holidays and you were about what age at this point? From when I can remember. From toddler all the, all the way through to when I was old enough to catch the train down to Hastings all through my teenage years. And I must admit, going through the more serious years of school, I was very distracted with thoughts of being out. That was going to be my next... Okay. observation is that you've attached to this 
intense world where you're responding to the, the environment, you're reading the fishing season, you're getting close connection with your grandfather, loving it, and then also having to put on a different hat of being a Marcelon schoolboy and be in the classroom and study at school. I've got to be honest, looking back on it, I was not the most attentive student in the more serious years of year 11 and 12. And it's not that I wasn't bright enough, because I think I was bright enough academically, but I've found it very distracting to get up in the morning and understand with the wind direction and the wind strength and what was going on with the weather patterns, what a fisherman would be doing on that day. So waking up or getting up in the morning, it wasn't just about catching the school bus or riding the bike to school. My thoughts were more on, well, if I was out on the bay today, what would we be doing? Yes. And what would we be targeting? And that was always far more exciting to think about those things than perhaps studying. So you're at year 11, Tim. What were you thinking at year 11 in terms of your schooling and where I'm going with that is what was your pathway into the fishing industry? Well, it was funny because deep down I knew that I only wanted to do one thing. But I was living in a world that had expectations of academic pursuits or trade. In those days, doing an apprenticeship was the alternative pathway if you weren't academically inclined. So it was sort of usually one of two pathways. You went to university or you went and did an apprenticeship. I was in this strange mindset where I knew I didn't want to do either. I just wanted to go fishing. So I'd front up to school and go through the steps of doing my homework, doing my assignments, doing the exams. But deep down, I knew that my pathway was, once I get through year 12, yes. I'm going to see. Yeah, so there's, there's two parallel lives that you're living that you can't see the connection between. Well... It was funny because Marcelin wasn't somewhere where it was a natural progression to go fishing. If you lived in some communities, coastal communities, perhaps in a place like Lake Centrance, people would go to secondary school and going to sea would be a natural progression. But certainly not in Bulleen. There wouldn't have been many fishermen, I wouldn't have thought, come out of the Bulleen campus. So it was like carrying this secret, I suppose. We used to have careers nights and... Yes. They trot out the, um, you know, the army and the police force and the universities, and people had asked me, "Well, what do you want to do?" And it was almost like a dark secret. Oh, I don't want to do any of this. I just want to go yes. fishing. Yes. So where did you go, and what did you do after you finished at Marsland? Well, I went straight down to Hastings and started fishing with my grandfather. And did that for a couple of years. And then the Australian Maritime College in Launceston started a fishery school in the early 1980s. That was a campus that was built on the back of Gough Whitlam promise to expand the maritime facility down in Tasmania. It was a campus that was designed mainly for the merchant navy but a fishery school started up as a subset of that campus and it seemed just ideal for myself. Mm. So in 1981, I went down to uh, Launceston and was in the first intake of the fishery stream of the Maritime College. Nice. Mm. 
And so what qualification did that equip? Uh, it was a degree in fisheries science, brackets, fisheries technology, which I think is a course that doesn't exist anymore, but that's what we got, we were awarded with, yes. And so you worked up north after graduating. Tell us a yeah, bit well, more about that. One of the things about going to the Maritime College was it opened up my eyes that the world expanded beyond Port Phillip and Western Port Bays, that the fishing industry was a big, big wide world and I made good friends at college who fished in various parts. So once I graduated, I went up to Queensland, went up, started in central Queensland and got a job on a trawler and then spent a couple of years, two or three years, travelling basically from boat to boat, heading north, north as far as the Torres Straits, virtually into New Guinea, and then west across to the Gulf of Carpentaria, Arnhem Land, across to Darwin, and then down the Kimberley Coast, working on trawlers Mm. of various... uh, Sizes and descriptions. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing, that, that breadth. And any of us who have foxtail and have watched Deadliest Catch, we know that working on a trawler is one of the most dangerous occupations in the world. Can you tell us a bit more about the dangers? Well, it's funny because my mother never wanted me to be a fisherman. And in those days, it was a bit of a... Cow- it was still a cowboy industry. The northern prawn fishery was still pretty wild. And the skippers were pretty wild and uh, firearms were common on boats and it wasn't unheard of for disputes to um, end up in fairly hairy situations, particularly when there's a patch of prawns that's located and you might have 30 trawlers, 30 big trawlers descending on a patch of prawns which might only be as big as a tennis court and you've got 30 80-foot trawlers steaming full bore to try and shoot their gear through one patch of prawns. Needless to say, things got fairly hectic. Mm. From a safety perspective, the guys up there were... They were wild, but they were really conscious of safety. The boats had their own way of dealing with safety issues, and it was dangerous work if you weren't aware of those things yes. and the gear and everything yes. was and, and the type of operation there was no doubt that things could go pear-shaped very quickly in the space of seconds things could get very hairy very quickly and there were times uh, that happened but with training and being aware of things hopefully uh, and being with good crew that was always the secret yeah. was to be on a good boat where yes. everyone worked as a team and you could deal with things and you could, and people knew instinctively what to do and what not to do under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting time because the charts we were working on were still the charts that were prepared by Matthew Flinders. Oh, that's not interesting. So we were fishing up off uh, the Arafura Sea and we were out of radar range of the coast with big tides, they were 30-foot tides, so twice a day the sea level would drop and rise 30 feet. Mm. Strong tides and we wouldn't know exactly where we were, so it was interesting times. Mm. And we, I mean, that particular boat, I was 
I think I got on that boat in March and got off just before Christmas. So I was at sea for um, nearly a whole year mm. on an 80-foot boat. And we used to unload to a mothership once a month and we used to get fuel. We'd have enough fuel for a month and enough water for a month. And no mobile phones, of course, and no internet. So mail or any connection with the outside world came from snail mail. So once a month I'd get letters from home or I could post letters. It was fairly fairly remote. But we saw wonderful, wonderful things to be up in that part of the world. Yes. Remote and isolated it was a fantastic experience. Mm, mm. So you, you've touched on some of those those risks and dangers, and but also some of the enjoyable things, the things that you've seen. Even though you're isolated from your family, you still have connection with your family. So you've come back from the northern parts of Australia, and you've you've moved back south. What happened after that? Well, I'd had enough sea time to qualify to get my skipper's ticket. Uh, well, there's various levels of skipper's ticket, but the skipper's ticket that I wanted to get, I'd acquired enough sea time. So I set my, my exams and uh, passed my skipper's ticket. Which and who's that through? That's through, well, it's changed a little bit. The equivalent now is the National Maritime Authority. So the actual certificate that I got then doesn't exist anymore. It's been transposed over to the modern and updated system. So that's an internationally recognised ticket that allows me to skip a vessels up to a certain length, which is just under 35 metres, so I can legally drive a boat uh, up to that size anywhere in Australian waters, which has been enough for me to cover anything I've wanted to do in my career. Yep. So what does your business look like now? You've got well, the skipper's ticket. Well, well going back to... Um, when I came back from up north, I'd had, had enough of working on big boats, being on one boat for nearly a year with a handful of guys was probably enough of working at that level. And my heart was always in the bay. That was where my passion still lied. So I had great fun. I had great experiences, saw some wonderful country, but being in the bay was really where my passion was. It, that never left me. So I came back from working probably on the most up-to-date prawn trawler in Australia. It was probably one of the best and best equipped and best fishing units anywhere in the world. And I came back to working on a little single-handed boat in Western Port Bay. It was really good to come home. That was, that was what it felt like. It was like coming home. Mm. And uh, so I started fishing back in... Western Port, predominantly Western Port, sometimes over in Port Phillip. Single-handed fishing operation. And then I had a small retail outlet in Hastings where I sold my product. So I was basically running two businesses, if you like. I had the catching side and then I had the retail side. Mm. Now, there's been a lot of changes in the inshore fishing industry. Do you want to tell us more about those? By the late 90s, the pressure was coming on the commercial industry from various green groups and recreational fishing lobby groups. And unfortunately, the commercial industry was never really well equipped to deal with it. We're a small industry, not well resourced, and not politically connected. And unfortunately, politicians have decided over the last few years to make decisions that 
for them were the easy way out. So the inshore fish resources of Victoria and, and most of Southeast Australia have been allocated over to the recreational sector. If you went back to the mid-1990s, Victoria would have had over 200 inshore fishermen. We're probably down to about less than two dozen, mm. and most of those are on the way out, being phased out at the moment. So there's only one small inlet left, which is Corner Inlet, and I'm not sure what the survival likelihood is for that fishery, but uh, we've basically, as an industry, been exterminated through political means. And none of those closures have been based on science or sustainability issues. It's been purely political. So now Port Phillip and Western Port, which is my fishery, is now completely closed down to commercial fishing, which means that people can no longer buy fish from those areas. Tim, you were saying that the the inshore fishing wasn't politically represented or connected. What's the counter-argument that you can see that the commercial fishermen could have opposed the closing of the industry? We'll go back a step. Firstly, Australia's got the best managed fisheries in the world. There's no doubt about that. Our fisheries have been based on science. Each state has its own set of legislation as well as a Commonwealth layer of fisheries management. But each of the fisheries acts in this country is based on the principles of ecologically sustainable development which means by definition the fisheries have to demonstrate their ability to be sustainable for the stocks and the marine environment to withstand any of the commercial fishing practices. So there's never been a question that the commercial inshore fisheries weren't sustainable or that the practices were doing damage to the ecosystem. Most of the fisheries in in Victoria Most of the industries go back more than 100 years and the techniques have basically remained the same and have been managed by a complex set of regulations. The argument of the commercial industry was always that the commercial industry supplies fish to the consumer and to close down the commercial sector was to deny consumers access to fresh fish. It was a very fundamental argument and that recreational fishing and commercial fishing could coexist and that if decisions were to be made, they were to be made on science Mm. and that if the fish stocks inshore estuaries or bays were to be harvested at all, then the allocation of that harvest should be based on science and an allocation to the general population should be included in that calculation. And the only way the general population can access its fish is through the commercial sector. Mm. The reality has been that various politicians and political parties have decided, and it's usually run with an electoral cycle, that come election, common sense goes out the window and the squeaky wheel gets the oil, if you like, and the recreational sector have been able to wrangle backdoor deals that have been against science but have been effective come election time Mm. and the commercial sector has been represented by a small group of guys who while they would argue that their case is valid haven't had the political clout to uh, withstand the onslaught so unfortunately I think 
the community's been let down, not just the fishing industry, but the community's been let down. Mm. And I don't think that's really kicked in, although I'm amused that every time I turn on the TV now, there's a cooking show or a competitive cooking show, and everyone wants to eat fish or cook fish. <laughs> but tragically, we never see local fish. Mm. Australia imports about three quarters of its seafood, mm. and that's on the way up. And at the moment, we have little idea about traceability. Yes. We don't know if that fish is being sourced from sustainable resources. The work conditions of some of those industries are questionable, and there's no doubt that slave labour is used, particularly through Southeast Asia, slave labour is used to provide a lot of that fish. We don't know about the water quality from where some of this fish has been got, mm. and particularly the aquaculture industry, the practices through Southeast Asia that um, have adopted what, by our standards, would be questionable practices. That seafood's coming in, and at the moment, people can't buy fish from our own resources mm. so mm. it's a tragedy i think people will wake up and unfortunately it's too late mm. those industries won't come back no no so tim going back to the 90s where there were these changes from a political level affecting the commercial fishing industry what sort of actions did you take to try and make your voice heard well i got involved with the representative side of the fishing industry back in the late 80s and I maintained my involvement through the Victorian Peak Body, which was came under the banner of Seafood Industry Victoria, and I was part of the inauguration of that organisation back in the late 80s, which uh, led to me being on the board and eventually I was chairman of, of that organisation for quite a while. The battle to save the industry was an ongoing one, like it never finished, it had no end. Until such time as in 2006, at the state election, the Brax government announced that they would, if they got back into power, they would close Western Port Bay to commercial fishing. Up until that time, I'd been involved at a political level. I'd organised our own fishermen, the inshore fishermen, the Bay and Inlet fishermen, to develop strategies that would have countered that. And we were doing things like demonstrating our practices. We were looking at getting our fishery assessed from the Marine Stewardship Council, which is an international arm of the um, World Wildlife Fund, to get our fishery certified as being sustainable. Unfortunately, the battle was lost before we could implement some of those strategies. I think it was a case of too little, too late. And fishermen aren't good at conducting their battles. They tend to be fairly independent, slow to adapt to political change. The typical response is, I just want to go fishing. I don't want to have to deal with this. I want to go to work. I want to go fishing. I want to get to the end of the week and Mm. I want to have made a quid. Mm. I don't want to go down this path. So to get them to understand, and these guys, a lot of them were blokes that, would have left school at 14. Yes. Not necessarily well educated, not advert, not well grounded in the political world and not understanding why 
the world was changing and why things were changing. What were these forces that were coming out of the ground, if you like, mm. and not well equipped to deal with it? Mm. So the, they tended to be blokes who were extremely capable of dealing with their own businesses, the challenges of being a fisherman, the challenges of being at sea, but the challenges of politics and community expectations and community lobby groups. Mm. How do I deal with that? Well, they weren't equipped mm. to deal with it. So it was a case of, um, I suppose, natural selection at work where people that weren't adapted to dealing with change got caught up in it and got wiped out. So the, you're the chairperson of this panel, Tim. You're trying to make a living as a fisherman. Mm. You're trying to rally the troops, all the other fishermen, trying to get them, bring them along to see we've got to do this in order that we're not left out of the discussion on inshore fishing. So how did that work for you when in 2006, you say, the decision had been made? Where did that leave you then? Well, that was an interesting time. It, it was actually a devastating time because the announcement came from the blue and it came two weeks before a state election and I came home from fishing one Saturday morning and my wife had heard on the radio that the government had announced they would close Western Port Bay. So that left us totally gutted at every level. So I lost my fishing business, I lost my retail business was basically unemployed and that brought with it all the repercussions for the household because we were just like every other household. We had debt, we had a mortgage, mm. uh, we had expectations of income, we had our life was actually ticking along quite well and that was removed in mm. one overnight. basically yeah. overnight. Our family were a pioneering family in Western Port Bay and that ran into every level of the community. That ran into the school, it ran into the football club, the cricket club, every aspect of a small town community, the tentacles extended one way or the other. So to lose my ability to be a fisherman actually removed my position in the community. That mm. ceased to exist. So my connection through the shop, which gave me connection to a whole heap of people that had bought fish off me for decades, and many of them had bought fish off my grandfather before that. Yes, because you're a pioneering and, family, your family. Yes, so my identity as a fisherman as to who I was was gone overnight. So that part of me and my connection to the bay, connection to the environment, was removed immediately and and that actually I mean it hurt at lots of levels so on one hand I had the fact that I was unemployed and what that meant to the household it meant that immediately I had no connection with community and it also meant that I had no connection with environment with habitat with mm. uh, the cycles that I was completely wired into. Mm. So that was, at every level, I was removed. And I had to deal with them simultaneously. And I'm not sure which one was the toughest. The fact that the financial matters had to be dealt with. 
or the pain within the household mm. and then my own challenges, I suppose, mm. is to losing my identity. Mm. They're all interlinked, aren't they? It's they hard, were. hard to They're choose com- one. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely interlinked. Mm-hmm. So where to from there? Well, the first couple of weeks after the announcement, I spent running a campaign against the then government, which was interesting. And that was very invigorating because it had been such an attack on me as a person and our family as a unit that we were quite motivated to not go down without a fight. So that was the first thing we did. We ran a campaign against the sitting member, who was actually a friend of mine, ironically. And I'll never forget the feeling when we watched the election coverage that night and to have the uh, Deputy Premier declare on the ABC, we don't know what's going on in Hastings because we didn't expect that result as they lost the seat. That was quite invigorating. Unfortunately, it didn't change the outcome, but it was certainly a nice feeling to throw a punch back after being knocked mm. to the ground to get back up and say, well, I'm not, we're not going down without a fight. Yes. So that was the first few weeks. Then the reality set in, well, where to now? And one thing I was determined was that was not going to define me or us as a family. That's not going to be the end of it. I am a fisherman and I will go back fishing and our family will bounce back from this. So we had a bit of... Uh, you're very strong-willed, Tim. You've got a lot of resilience, which I suppose you have to have when you're well, on, that, the, on the high seas and in the water. That, that might come with the territory. but So we had a few family meetings and we came up with a very rough plan that I would buy a Tasmanian fishing licence and I started a set up a little fishing business on Flinders Island in the middle of Bastrack. And part of that the basis for that was I reckon that'll be the last place that these so-and-sos will find me and I'm going back fishing. So that's what I did. We uh, bought a little cottage down there and I built a shed, which was very therapeutic. I built a big shed and I transferred my fishing business, if you like, from Hastings down to Flinders Island. So in that one move, you were able to reconnect with the environment, also reconnect with who you were as a fisherman and also have a, a business. Yes. And I'm not sure which order you'd count that in. I can remember the first day that I went fishing because I'd never fished on Flinders Island and I'd never been out on a boat on Flinders Island and I had no idea of anything. But I launched the boat and I had a bit of gear in aboard and I steamed out into this amazing patch of water And I can remember this feeling of, well, you can all go and get stuffed because I'm going fishing. And And did you have a little rego plate on on your boat gone fishing? No, but it was very, it was a very much a Mm. up yours moment. Yeah, I've bounced back. I'm in control of my own destiny again. Yes, the business component was never a big part of the thinking it was very much I'm going fishing and that's it and after I've gone fishing then I'll work out the viability of being a fisherman 
So I need so, to I need so, to go fishing. Yes. I need to go fishing. I'm a fisherman and I'm going fishing. And then we'll work out the other finer details, which confused a lot of people. People ask me, so how are you going to do this? How are you going to make this work? How are you actually going to make a quid out of this? I don't know yet. I haven't worked that bit out. You were doing your due diligence. On the run. I'm not sure due diligence was a term that was used. It was, I'm going fishing, and that's it. And I must say that all through this, my wife was completely supportive. And I think she, I think Pat understood, because even before the closure of Western Port, if we were having a bad week or I was having a bad week or something, or we had a couple of bad weeks of weather... I know there were times when Pat would say, why don't you just go fishing? And I think she understood yes. that that was a part of what I had to do. Mm. She recognised that in me probably more than I did. She yes. probably had to put up with the moods or the consequences and she'd say, why don't you just go fishing? Yes, so, so the activities so, that feed your mental health and feed, yeah. feed your sense of well-being yes. are also what feeds the family and it's your living. Yes. Yeah. So I started fishing and then I was met with all sorts of challenges with freight how to get product off the island. It's a small island and most of the locals catch their own fish, so there's not really a... How do you get there? There's a few ways, but the most direct way is a plane. From? from, Well, there's a passenger service from Essendon Airport. Or... And that's how many fit on that plane? Eight-seater? Eighteen. Eighteen? Yeah. But we have flown... Down and back, all sorts of ways from Tyab Airport, from Turidan Airport. Mm. I've gone from Tyab Airport to Ocean Grove to Yarram to all sorts of places to yeah. get there via Cape Barren Island. Can the average person, if they get know there. that, yeah, yeah, they, they yeah can there get is. There, okay. there is a passenger service. Okay. But the challenges of catching a product, Getting it off the island and getting it to a market, that was a whole new world. Yes. Because prior to then, when I was fishing in Western Port, I got in in the morning and I had my own little retail outlet and people were queuing up to get fish. There was never any problem getting rid of it. And if there was excess, I could always run it up to the wholesale market in Melbourne. So this was a whole new world, getting product off the island. And I won't take up the whole interview with the challenges, but... (laughs) Fair to say that it was interesting. It so was harder than organising a, a political rally or campaign? Oh, or... yes. yes. Well, it's funny because I always took people on their word. If, if a pilot said, oh, well, I'm going to be leaving on such and such a time, then that's what I base my decisions on. And then I'd find out at the last minute that the plane wasn't going or that the plane was going down to pick up a load of mutton birds and he couldn't take my fish or that an ab diver had changed his plan. So in such so, a small community, I suppose you're stuck with, you can't tell them, or you can't no. go sick at them because you need them for yes. future transport. Yes, and everyone's related to everyone else or <laughs> has got a gig with someone else. Yep. Yep. And if you're an outsider, you don't understand exactly the detail. Yes. But you know it just happens. Yes. So you just keep your mouth shut. And uh, I worked around them and within that smart frame yep. work of uncertainty. And one thing I've learned about the island 
is nothing stays the same. Every time you come up with an idea, okay, this is going to work, it works for a little while and then something happens. Is it a human factor or weather factors or what is that? A combination, yes. And it's there's always lots of connections as to why things happen and it's never a direct linkage. It's not like the plane's delayed but it'll be leaving tomorrow. It's a whole set of factors yes. that have taken place. So Flinders and Island politically, are they that's part of Tasmanian. Tasmanian. Mm. Yep. And look, Flinders Island's been wonderful for the family because we've spent a lot of time down there. And part of me setting up down there, I was conscious of being the outsider and stepping on people's toes and upsetting the locals. And we made a conscious decision that I was not just going to go down there, catch a whole heap of fish and send it off island and make a quid. Mm. We were going to be part of the community. Mm. So we invested a lot of time... It's a family characteristic too, isn't it? Being part of the community. Well, so as a family, we would spend school holidays down there. And that helped build all the networks mm. and mm. so in your own way you were networking it was like yeah, this was yeah, the yeah. the foundation of your business yeah. network and it wasn't it took me a long time to get set up down there it wasn't an instant thing to actually get the boat and get fishing was mm. because first i had to build a shed and i had to get a cool room set up and all that mm. sort of stuff mm. and that was full of challenges so there's quite quite a time lag actually going fishing. I can imagine so, that even a restaurant call room can be quite a procedure to get set up. I mean, mm. How do things get, I suppose, presumably everything's flown onto the island or shipped? or boat. Yeah. And there's a regular service from Bridport, from Tassie. So, for example, the guy that helped that put my shed up came from here after trying with the locals. Yeah, might have to ship stuff from Melbourne to Devonport, get it over to Bridport, on the northeast coast of Tassie, and then the boat comes once a week mm. from Bridport. Lot to think about, lot to plan, yes. yeah, anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you can't just go down to Bunnings and get a packet of screws or bolt that fits, and you can't just go and buy a tin of paint. You have to get everything off island. Mm. And presumably everything's a little more costly because it's incorporating that freight mm. and mm. that inconvenience of a tradie mm. or whoever coming over. The islanders are very clever. They're very resilient. The old islanders have grown up in a very tough environment and they've become very adept at making the best out of any situation. So things like freight, they don't just put something on the boat and ship it over. If something's coming over, for example, a friend of mine bought a second-hand car from Launceston, but part of the deal was that the car salesman had to drive it to the ferry but on the way, he had to stop at the toilet paper wholesaler and he had to fill the car up with toilet paper. Yeah, so it gives, you know, kill, kill two birds with one yes. stone. It so, gives it a new meaning. So every challenge will have another opportunity. Yes. If, if you're paying for some freight, then what else can you jam yes, in that box? Yes, every opportunity is leverage. Yes. Yep. Yeah. What does your business look like today? Well, it still has some characteristics of my whole business and that it's short fishing trip usually overnight or f- 
sometimes during the day. Fish coming home in ice slurry, I process it, then I package it, snap freeze it, and store it. So the first part of it's very similar in that it's a premium product. I target tend to target the top yielding fish, the, the high-end fish. It's handled, if I may say so myself, in an exemplary manner. It's a, it's a top product. The difference is I don't have that daily outlet. So now I'm freezing it so it can be shipped off at a time that I can arrange freight to get off the island rather than trying to transport a fresh product or a chilled product. Mm. So you mentioned the National Maritime Authority. What careers can you see in the maritime industry now? Look, I've got to be honest, the fishing industry is not something that I've been encouraging people to pursue unless there's a family connection, a direct link to get into it. The actual wild fishery component of the fishing industry isn't something I'd be encouraging. But I think aquaculture is where we will be sourcing our, our seafood from in this country. That's the growth area. So in Tasmania, the Atlantic salmon is now a huge industry. So when uh, you say aquaculture, it's the fish it's controlled farming yeah. of marine life. Yes. And I actually spent two years working out of Mornington on a mussel farm. There was a period where the household needed me home here rather than being on Flinders Island. So I spent two years as skipper on a boat out of Mornington and we were growing and harvesting mussels, which was a, a great learning experience. I actually didn't know anything about mussel farming, but the operation needed a skipper, needed someone to that was qualified to operate the boat from a legal perspective. So... I was on the boat and the other crew actually had the expertise for growing the mussels, how to grow them from start to finish, from a seedling all the way through to a finished product. And I learned a lot about aquaculture in that period. And that particular product was fantastic because that's an indigenous species that mm. grows wild. Mm. And all we were doing was really controlling their growth, where they were growing and growing them in such a way that they could be harvested mm. in an economically feasible manner. The demand for fish, I'm sure we'll see the, the development of scale fish, wet, wet fish, in time, I think that'll be the growth area. But at the moment, we've got the, the Atlantic salmon in the north of the country. We've got barramundis being farmed. A lot of our aquaculture at the moment is based inshore, onshore farms like prawn farms, abalone farms, not a lot of it is at sea. The Probably the two bis, biggest examples are the Port Lincoln tuna cages where the fish is caught in the wild and captured by a net, towed in close and then grown out in a controlled environment. Mm. So it's, it's fish ranching, if you like. Yeah. It's a, a massive industry. And the Atlantic salmon... And that's is, just in South Australia, Tim? At the moment, Port Lincoln's the centre of that. But I think that's the type of thing that we'll see for wild fish. The secret will be cracking the code for 
hatching them and growing growing them from start to finish. Yes. Which the Atlantic salmon industry is based on. That's based on the whole life cycle of the fish is managed. That's an introduced species which, to me, I suppose, is not as attractive as perhaps growing our own species, but it's a popular product. Mm. And I suppose with the demise of the local species like wild-caught snapper and whiting, people have to buy something. So now you can go mm. into the supermarket and buy Tasmanian-grown Atlantic salmon mm. Mm. as a substitute. So mm. there's another story I've heard about a tsunami. Tell us a bit more about that, Tim. Okay. In 2004, Boxing Day, the earthquake in Southeast Asia and the tsunami that followed. The next couple of days, we're all hit with the images on TV of what was happening. And the damage that was coming through, or the images of the damage that were coming through, I actually had a fisherman ring me. I was the chairman of our peak body, and he rang me, and he was virtually in tears. And he said, I've just watched the news, and I was watching a fisherman in Sri Lanka trying to salvage his gear or his nets. Look, I've got all these nets in my shed that I'm not using. How can I get them over there? And I was at work. I was in my shop. And I said, leave it with me. I made a few phone calls and I could tell you the long story, but I won't. But the short story is within a couple of days, I was on my way to Sri Lanka to instigate an aid project based entirely on providing assistance to fishermen. Now, just to put it in perspective, the figures that I was working on that were available at the time, a few days after the tsunami... There was 12,000 fishermen in Sri Lanka missing or dead. Mm. 12,000. And every one of those would have been the provider for yes. the household. When you think about it, it's not surprising that it's, it was the fishing community that was hit hardest because the fishermen in Sri Lanka are very poor and most of them live in small communities, small villages, and they're based right on the, on the shore. Mm. The message I got very quickly was, it didn't start off with me going to Sri Lanka, it was how do I get equipment yes. and aid to these communities. And the message that came back very quickly was, there's no point just sending stuff. You have to go and firstly find out what they need, and secondly, establish networks to make sure that what you send gets there, gets to who it, yes. who it needs to get to. And there was a lot of challenges there. Firstly, the country was at war. The connection or the connectivity was based very much on the west coast and the southern coast. The east coast of Sri Lanka at that time was a war zone, the north and west. So the east coast of Sri Lanka was a no-go zone for most people. So the data that I was getting and the stories that I was getting were based very much on, on the south, you know, not the whole of the island, mm. just the, the south and, and the west coast. Bearing in mind that the tsunami hit the east coast, it actually curled around the bottom of the island and went up the west side, mm. which is pretty hard to imagine. Mm. I went over and um, nothing really prepared me for what I encountered, I've got to say. It um, was rather overwhelming Probably the thing that got me through, just before I left, a good friend of mine who's a remote nurse, she said to me, 
don't forget, you can't save the world. So the flip side and, of that is every little and, bit helps. And that was a really good lesson. And not just for that day, but also in life. Sometimes just setting your, your horizon with a very defined framework. Like, don't try and fix everything. If you can just fix this bit, that will be okay. I went over there and I made some connections and I got down into some fishing communities and got feedback on what they needed and how we're going to go about it, how we're going to get stuff down to them. I met with the Minister of Ports at the time in his home and he basically gave the green light for us to get stuff through the port system without paying import duties and the fact that it wouldn't all sit on the wharf, which a lot of stuff did. I was over there for a couple of weeks and it was overwhelming and I was struck with images that have never really left me, I've got to say. Stories of survival and stories of loss Mm. and uh, how these communities were affected. Mm. And when I got back, I got the peak body on board and we raised a lot of money, we bought outboard motors, we got fishing equipment and I organised a sponsor here to uh, arrange for the freight so we got equipment, outboard motors, Mm. all sorts of stuff shipped over there and got them delivered down to the fishing communities. Mm. That's all through people you knew and people you could call. I made some connections before I went and I had obviously connections over here but it was about pulling it all together. Yeah. Yeah, so that was something that I didn't envisage being involved with, but it, it happened very quickly. We achieved what we set out to achieve, which was we got a little bit of help to a small number of people. But on top of that, part of the project was to try and gear on the back of our project to get the federal government and get other authorities involved with providing assistance, because at the time I felt very much that Sri Lanka really wasn't on the had been left out a little bit. Yeah, it wasn't on people's radar. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Sri Lanka beat us in the World Cup in <laughs> 1996. And he was a cricket-playing nation that I felt that mm. we turned our back on mm. a little bit. Yeah, so I uh, knocked on a lot of politicians' doors and a lot of public servants and um, went to Canberra, spoke to people and got them involved with getting some things happening in Sri Lanka. So in coming full circle from when we first started talking today, uh, and given we're talking regarding the Marcel Business Network magazine, you started as a youngster with your grandpa, and that he was your network there, so family business, and then you've you've moved through Marcel and you've left Marcel and you've fished with your grandpa once again, kept that connection. You've gone up north, returned done a degree at Launceston, come back and done inshore fishing in Victoria. What's the impact or what can you see are key factors within your networking with being employed by someone else or in your own business? What have been the key or critical factors you've seen within networking? Well, hopefully I'll be able to answer this in the way that you like, but perhaps I'll just give you some random comments. My first description of being at school and then just wanting to be out fishing possibly gives an impression of not wanting to be in the classroom. But one thing I've learnt is that education and qualifications will be the key to any success. 
because I've worked with plenty of guys on trawlers that were incredibly capable, could do anything. They could run the boat, they could design gear, they could mend gear, they could fix motors, they could do anything. Unfortunately, a lot of them were guys that weren't capable or didn't have the desire or didn't have the commitment to actually convert that into a qualification, whether it be from a nautical perspective, from an engineering perspective, you have to go and get a ticket or a certification of some sort. Mm. So just going and working on a boat might get you a job, but it won't get very far. So there is always a connection back to qualifications, whether it be from an engineering perspective, radio operator. Formal education. Formal education. and, And being a skipper, you have to go and get your ticket so all the way through there's this need to link whatever you want to do back to some qualification in that area and in the perhaps I'm I'm going to answer a different question here but getting back to opportunities in the maritime industry the merchant navy is an area that I probably never considered going down although some of my friends did and that's an area where I think there's huge potential Australia is an island we're reliant on importing stuff. We either we're digging stuff out of the ground and we're selling it overseas. It all goes on a ship. Mm-hmm. We don't manufacture much anymore. Most stuff comes in a box, in another box, in a big box, and those big boxes come by a ship. So, mm-hmm. and that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. So, the maritime industry, from the non-fishing sector, the the merchant side of things where there is always going to be a need for people to drive ships to make sure the engines keep running to the tugs that are involved with uh, birthing the ships when they get here there's huge opportunities i think and that's probably where young people could look at if they're interested in in being on boats that would be an area that would be worth looking at but once again there's no point just getting on a boat you have to the um, Australian Maritime College is still the focal point for training and that would be somewhere they could look for career opportunities. The Australian Maritime College in Launceston would still I think that would still I'm very much out of touch with it but it would still be the key training area mm. and that would be in communications I mean the, the growth in communications engineering bearing in mind that ships are coming under scrutiny for environmental performance. So the pollution that's derived Mm. from shipping is coming under legislation where all that's got to be cut back. So the technology involved with how ships are driven and how they're fuelled, that's all changing and that's going to require all sorts of challenges from an engineering perspective. But they're about to build new boats for to do the ferry run between Melbourne and Tassie and a guy that I went to college with he was in the merchant stream he was an engineer but he's working for the company that is designing those ships right there's all these new constraints on the fuel systems because you can't just chug pump out all this old black yes crap that the ships used to pump out so now they've got to change the fuel systems And these new ships will be running on 
diesel fuel like trucks, which is really expensive, because the fuel that ships run on traditionally is black sludge, like it's really low grade oil, but it's cheap. But of course it gets burnt and gets pumped out into the mm. environment. Well, mm. no, you can't do that anymore. You've got to have clean fuel, so it's either diesel, which is really expensive, or gas. So these new sh- new ferries are going to have these, you know, the huge motors, like they're massive mm. big things. They will have the ability to run on diesel oil and gas. So like a hybrid engine. Basically, yeah. So the same cylinder is going to have diesel going into it or they'll be able to flip it over to gas. Mm. So that's the sort of technology that's going into the shipping industry. Mm. So, mm. so there's careers in that then too. Yeah. If they're at school and think, I'm really interested in the environment because I hear about global warming and what we've got to change in our life. We're not going to stop ships coming to Australia because mm. the country would shut down in a week. But what are the challenges to make those ships part of the future? Mm. You know, what's acceptable for greenhouse gas emissions? Mm. So the technology that's going to have to go into the fuel systems Mm. on a ship. So if someone's sitting there, oh, I'm not really interested in chemistry because it's just boring, or I'm not interested in physics because it's... Well, what's the point? Where is a connection with a job? Well, Mm. you're interested in ships and how these ships run. Mm. There's not going to be less ships coming to Australia. There's going to be more Mm. ships Mm. or bigger ships or both. Mm. Growth industry. So what does your life look like now from you being in your 50s until retirement? Well, retirement's not something I've ever contemplated. And there was a sticker I think I saw somewhere that old fishermen never die they just smell like it but uh, my intention is just to stay fishing you know people say what would you do if you win Tats Lotto well if I won Tats Lotto I could afford to stay fishing so that's my plan is to continue what I'm doing because I enjoy it and um, you've touched on the fact that we're 40 years since our year 12 what was then HSC it is a time of reflection I suppose I hadn't really thought about it much, but now that these 40 reunions on our doorstep, it is a time of reflection. What have I done? What am I going to do? I'm pretty clear. I'm just going to stay fishing. I've worked hard enough to be able to do what I want to do. And I've always done that. I've always done what I wanted to do. Money's never been a focus as such, I suppose. Yeah. So that clarity of purpose hasn't changed. No, not at all. I hope my colleagues from 1979 have had as much fun as I've had (laughs) because I wouldn't change anything in any of my decisions in the last 40 years. Not everything's worked out the way I'd hoped, I've got to be honest, but would I do anything differently? No, no, I've I've had a great time and that's what I intend doing. And being down on Flinders Island is special. When I'm out on the boat, there is no other boat out there. There are no other people where I go. I don't see anyone. And it's magic. Mm. And I feel like it's a bit of a full circle for me that my grandfather and his father, they were pioneers in what they did. Well, I'm sort of in that same place. Mm. I can just go out and I choose where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do and how long I'm going to stay out there. 
and it's mm. magic it's beautiful mm. and um, I don't know what else I could do that would be more fun well we could talk all day Tim it's been wonderful listening to your experience and thanks for having us here today and we look forward to seeing you at the 40th reunion of the class of 1979 thank you Maureen thank you I'm quite overwhelmed I suppose because there's probably lots of other people you could have spoken to so I'm tickled pink that uh, I've had this chance. Thanks Tim. Wow what a fantastic story Tim has to tell. I want to say thanks to Tim and I'd say thank you to Maureen. Obviously they sat down to have a conversation about Tim's alma mater and his growing up years and going into his industry. But when Tim started talking about his broad experience in the maritime industry, he was talking about things that I was hearing for the first time, which is what Precious Stories is about. Quite often people won't share those stories unless they're asked, or they might think they're not even important. But when we hear them, they have quite a significant impact on us. So Precious Stories is about getting and capturing those stories of those people who are precious to us and have great stories to tell. So if you have a story of a friend or a member of the family that you think should be told, like we've just done, don't hesitate to get in touch. Go to preciousstories.com.au. On there you'll see lots of examples of work we've done and a lot of background information about how to go about it and some of the do's and don'ts around this medium. If you like what you see or you want to know more information, don't hesitate to give me a call. My mobile number is listed on that website. Until our next episode, take care.